Welcome to the Father Jim Willig Gospel Teachings Podcast, presented by Heart to Heart, a Catholic media ministry. Father Jim was a well-known and much-loved diocesan priest from Cincinnati, Ohio. Inspired by God's Word, for many years, Father Jim presented a weekly Bible study on the Sunday Gospels. In 2001, Father Jim went home to the Lord after a battle with cancer, but his recordings and teachings live on to inspire thousands. First, we hear from Father Jim's good friend, Jesuit priest, Father Michael Sparrow, who opens this podcast by proclaiming the gospel reading. Then, Father Jim's illuminating gospel teaching follows. A reading from the Holy Gospel, according to Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. I'd like to begin, actually, by highlighting something that I read and heard so many years ago. It still stuck with me, and I think it's one of the most profound teachings, at least from a psychological point of view, that we could ever take to heart. William James, who was a Harvard-trained physician and professor, discovered in his medical practice that a patient's attitude seemed to determine so much of their own recovery. How they felt and thought about themselves in their life determined, to a large extent, their own health or improvement in health. And many of us assume that today, but what James was so struck by this that he actually took up the study of psychology became a psychologist, and then wrote the classic work in the field of psychology called The Principles of Psychology. And in that book, he wrote, and I quote, the greatest discovery of our generation is that human beings, by changing their inner attitudes of mind, can change the outer aspects of their life. 
Wow, can I say that again? The greatest discovery of our generation is that human beings, by changing the inner attitudes of our minds, can change the outer aspects of our lives. Isn't that profound? And I want to now say, far before the age of psychology, far before this was ever a science to try to understand the way the mind works, Jesus said this in the great Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was the one who clearly set up what we call today the be attitudes. That is, the right attitude to live a blessed life. And it's not what the world teaches. I would also probably add, it's probably not what psychologists today teach either. It's a whole different wisdom that almost turns conventional wisdom of the world upside down and inside out. It's a divine perspective on human life. Now, before I say more, I want to situate this gospel of the Beatitudes into the larger frame of Matthew's gospel that is divided into five major parts. So remember, the, representing the Torah, recall that Matthew's writing his gospel to a predominantly Jewish audience. They're familiar with this Torah, that is the five books of the Bible as we know them. And even more specifically, Matthew then aligns those five sections into five major sermons of Jesus. He frames his whole gospel in the typical Jewish setting. And the first of the sermons, and the longest, and the most well-known, is this great Sermon on the Mount that begins here, chapter 5, but continues through chapter 6 and chapter 7. And it's today's gospel that the Beatitudes, that is the prologue or the introduction to the sermon. In fact, as we will see, this sermon is really not a sermon as we would know it. The, this isn't being recorded or reported verbatim as Jesus would have given it. It's more a collection of the great sayings of Jesus. It's more of stringing together a series of teachings, the quintessential teachings, the central critical teachings of Jesus Christ. Thus, the title, The Great Sermon on the Mount. If there's ever a time that this sermon needs to be taught and heard and lived, it is today. Amen? Again, as Matthew, the brilliant writer, situates the teaching before he has Jesus deliver it. We hear in the opening lines of this scene that he sets, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside. We, like the Jewish audience, ought to recall Moses who went up on the great mountain of the Lord, Mount Sinai, to receive, remember, the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the teaching, the Torah, the great commandments of God. The mountain in the Bible and throughout the gospel is the sacred place where heaven comes closest to earth and God reveals himself on those sites, such as the transfiguration, as we will see later. Jesus then, like Moses of old, goes up this mountain to give a new teaching, to give a new law, 
that goes far beyond the old minimal law of Moses. So many people say, you know, we got to get back to the Ten Commandments. Yes, that is true. We must. But that's only the minimum of the law. That tells us what we should not do. That shall not commit adultery. That shall not steal. That shall not bear false witness. That's the bare minimum. What Jesus does on the mountain is raise the ante to the maximum, calling us higher to think greater thoughts of all that we could be. If you will, that needs necessarily address first our attitude that determines, if you will, the altitude, the how far, how high we will grow in coming to God in God's way. And so we see Jesus, can you picture this in your mind, walking up this hillside that Matthew sees as a mountain, the place of revelation. And then you notice what he does? He sits down. Now, this is a very significant point for the Jewish audience because when the rabbis came to teach in the synagogue, they sat on the bench that was assuming what would be for us standing up at the pulpit at church. And the students would then sit on the ground, literally at the feet of the master, to take his words to heart. And so the disciples gather around him. Even today, by the way, we speak of the chair of a department as a symbol or seat of authority. And so Jesus assumes the seat of authority, this stance of a teacher, of a rabbi, and he calls his disciples up around him. Unlike Moses, mind you, when Moses went to the mountaintop, the people were waiting down in the valley, already forming their idols, by the way, you wouldn't recall. Jesus instead calls us up to this great insight, to have this mountain view. Jesus, in my mind, calling us disciples today to the highest moral standard of living, a call to great holiness, that we would aspire to these great heights of God's goodness, his very holiness. Mind you, the tendency of society is to do just the opposite, to reduce the moral standards to the lowest common denominator where we can all agree to live. You notice how we do that. We give in. We just take people, lower people, to the lowest common denominator instead of lifting them up, calling them, to a greater life. I think of how many people come to me today for marriage, but they're already living together. And society just accepts this. But Jesus' Sermon on the Mount calls us, challenges us not to accept this, not to live like this. This is what the church needs to keep doing. This is what we need to keep doing, holding up the higher standard all the while, having a hand to help them up without a heavy hand to hold them down. You know what I mean? Without being too critical or judgmental. We need to be compassionate and kind. And so that balance of conviction with compassion. But this is the voice in which Jesus teaches and speaks. And when we hear those words that Matthew says right before he begins, he says, then Jesus began to teach them. What I learned in my study of this commentary is that word to teach is a verb that was used in the imperfect tense that suggests a repeated action, suggesting, as I said earlier, that this sermon 
was something that Jesus repeatedly had given in different fashions, in different forms, different parts, different places to different people. But it's strung together, pulled together to be now this quintessential teaching that we see in the crystallized form in the great Beatitudes. These Beatitudes, if we were to count them, we would find eight Beatitudes. The last one seems to be repeated again. But these eight Beatitudes that can be separated into two halves, the first set of four represents the inner attitude we need to have. And the second set of four addresses the outer activities, that is, the outgrowth of the inner attitude. Because it starts with attitudes. And that's where Jesus starts in the Sermon on the Mount. I love it. And his whole point is to go to the root, which determines the height at which we'll go, addressing the attitude of mind. And he says, whoever has these attitudes will be blessed. And the, the word for blessed in the Greek, as it's written by Matthew in this gospel, is a word that could be translated, will have God-like joy. Isn't that a wonderful way of translating, understanding the Beatitudes? Whoever would have these attitudes will be joyful in the Lord. Uh, I can recall what Abraham Lincoln once said, most people are about as happy as they make up their mind to be. The attitude will determine, it's often, as I like to say, the altitude of how high we will go in life. So, the first of the first four Beatitudes addressing the inner attitude of mind, Jesus says, how blessed are the poor in spirit, the reign of God is theirs. The word for poor, I read, denotes beggar, one who desperately needs help. So for Matthew to say poor in spirit immediately suggests one who comes before God as a beggar, who knows they desperately, completely depend on God. And so come to him frequently, daily, for his daily bread. To be poor in spirit, mind you, is a hard place to be. Needy, hungry, feeling almost crazy, but going to God for his providence, trusting in his goodness. So the poor in spirit are those who put their trust in the Lord. And Jesus promises these people with this trusting attitude will not be disappointed for God will come to them. God will provide for them. God will bless them. Jesus continues, blessed too are the sorrowing. They shall be consoled. Now, none of these really make sense at face value, right? nor did they to the Jewish audience. Mind you, it was the conventional wisdom of his day, as it is the conventional wisdom of our day, that if you lived a godly life, you would be blessed not to have much suffering or hardship. Jesus turns that wisdom upside down on its head and says, no, actually, those will be blessed who are struggling 
not just because of their situation in life, but even more spiritually, this mourning or sorrowing is to be understood in the psalmist's words, those who weep for their sins, those who lament for their loss in life and need God's forgiveness and needs God's mercy. So God will come to them. God will forgive them. God will raise them up. Leading to next beatitude, blessed are the lowly. They shall inherit the land. The lowly are those who had no land. In Jesus' day, they didn't own anything, least of all property or land. Jesus says, these people who own next to nothing will come to God for everything. And God will have to be their provider, their father. And blessed are they who are lowly, who are meek, who are humble. And God will give them their sense of worth. God will give them their sense of value. He will give them land, that land referring to the new heaven and a new earth that we inherit from our Heavenly Father. You see, this has both a present value, but certainly everlasting value, as he promises this future inheritance that will come to all of us, hopefully in heaven. He continues, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for holiness, they shall have their fill. I can't tell you how many times people come to me and whenever I see in people a deep desire for God, my first thought is how blessed they are because they are on the threshold of coming into the castle of God's holiness. The holiness always begins, it appears to me, with a desire for holiness and that that is a prerequisite for coming to a greater share in the life of the Lord, to want more, to share more, to grow more in God's life. So what we ought to be praying for is that we would develop a real appetite for God's gifts, for God's food, and then, you know, we could grow. But unfortunately, we fill up on junk food in life. We get so distracted with so many busy things, we forget the most important things of God, right? And so, blessed are those who know they hunger and thirst for God, for holiness. For God will give them, what? His holiness, which is himself, which is his spirit, which is his life, which is his love. That's holiness. It's God's presence within them. Now we look to the final four blessings. If you have these attitudes, it's the beginning when we look outer to people, to what we need to live out. And one beatitude can beget the other, you know. And so Jesus continues, blessed are those who show mercy. Mercy shall be theirs. Think of mercy as being the best description of the heart of God. For God is a God of mercy. That is, that God will show himself, his mercy, which is love, to all of us, if only we would learn to show mercy to one another. This is such a deal. You know? If we learn to forgive each other, God will forgive us as we pray in the Our Father. Who are we to hold back on each other, thereby holding back God? 
from showing us that same kindness and forgiveness. So blessed are those who show mercy. Mercy shall be ours given judgment day. Blessed are the single-hearted, for they shall see God. What is it to be single-hearted but to have your sight set on what is of spiritual value, ultimate value in God? If only we could see as God sees. This is the view from the mountain of what's important, huh? Where life in the valley looks smaller. And so much, I think, of our life, we lose this divine perspective of what really matters. You've heard maybe me say that one time an older priest told me, Jim, two things is I would suggest to you first, don't sweat the small stuff. The second thing is put everything in God's hands and everything is small stuff. If we only see that. Blessed are the single-hearted, for they shall see God as they stand before God here and hereafter. Those who are so motivated, they put themselves in view of God, in God's view of life, and they see God. And ultimately, of course, will be in God's presence face to face. Blessed two are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons and daughters of God. The word for peace you might know in Hebrew, the word Jesus would have used when he spoke, perhaps although he spoke Aramaic too, but the word he would have drawn on in Hebrew was shalom. That conveys more than what our English words able to translate. For shalom meant more than just an absence of hostility. It meant the fullness of when a person is at peace, everything is right. You're in right relationship with God first and everybody else as well. So peacemakers are those people who cultivate those right relationships and reconcile where there's differences to bring the community to be truly at peace, in harmony, at oneness with God and each other. Blessed are those people, for they will be called sons and daughters of God, which I learned in my study was a euphemism or an allusion to saying they are like angels of God. They walk with the angels. They're like messengers because they're peacemakers. Finally, Jesus says, blessed are those persecuted for holiness sake. The reign of God is theirs. These persecuted will remind us of the prophets. Remember those prophets are people who spoke out what God's will and God's word was and always suffered because of it, because people don't like to hear the hard truths that calls them and challenges us to change. Blessed are such people who live prophetic lives because God will be with them and they will be with God here and hereafter. The reign of God is theirs. The reign of God starts here and reaches its climax, of course, in heaven. The reign of God is already among us, growing into the fullness when we enjoy that life with the Lord. These are the attitudes that we need to have. What I'd like to share now is how I learned these blessed attitudes this last week when I traveled to Grenada. Grenada, you might know, is a small country island in the Caribbean, not too far from Trinidad, if you know where that is, or Barbados, or 
Venezuela, near South America. And, as you could guess, Grenada has a heavenly climate, but I add, a hellish economy. They have a very limited industry. Most people there are underemployed or even unemployed. To make matters worse, because they are not very self-sufficient and they are such a small, small island, they have to import most of their goods, which means that although they make much less than half of what any of us usually average in our income, everything costs at least twice more than what we could purchase here in the United States. So what that figures out to is people who are very, very poor, who own very, very few possessions, and very few have cars. They're not necessarily starving, but they're not eating off the fat of life. Two thoughts kept recurring again and again in my mind and in my heart as I spent this short seven days with them. The first was, as I looked into their eyes, I began to see, of course, there are many, many physical needs. And I began to see that it isn't quite right, it seems to me, that people would live so poor while I live so well. That there's this great disparity between the rich and the poor, between our nation and their nation. And if I knew that I had any one of my brothers and sisters in my immediate family were hurting or hungry or needing in such a great way, none of us would think twice about helping our family out, right? What I began to see is that the people in Grenada, as the people in Haiti, as the people in Mexico, as the people on our borders, are our brothers and sisters. And when, when you look at them face to face, you see, as I think God took the scales away from my eyes, there is my brother. There is my sister. One great rabbi once said, how do you know when the night ends and the day begins? One student said, isn't that when you see the sun rise on the horizon? And the rabbi said, no. Another student volunteered, well, isn't that when you could confidently walk in the woods and not stumble over the path? And the rabbi said no. One after another offered an insight. Finally, they asked the rabbi, will you tell us when does night end and day begin? The rabbi said, when you look at one another and see your brother and your sister. This is what was dawning on me. If they are my brother and my sister, then what must I do? I felt compelled, as I once said, to live more simply so that others could simply live. The second thing that even struck me more, especially in light of Matthew's Beatitudes, was the fact that as poor as these people are, I found almost because of the fact they are so needy, they have a more immediate instinct for going to God, for knowing their need for God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
the reign of God is theirs. Amen. Thank you for listening to Father Jim's Gospel Teaching. We hope you have been inspired and will subscribe to this weekly podcast and share it with your family and friends. The mission of Heart to Heart is to proclaim the good news of God's Son, Jesus, to the entire world. For more inspirational teachings by Father Jim and Father Michael, visit our website, www.htoh.us. May God bless your heart and the hearts of all your loved ones.